Well, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. Oh, yeah. All right, everyone. So today we have a pretty awesome show lined up for you. We are joined by Dr. Leibovich, who is a fascinating individual and brilliant researcher, and you will find out all about him very shortly. And other than that, I will just self-promote very briefly and say, if you haven't checked out the Imposter Minute, check it out, because it's a new little thing I'm, I'm trying to test out. Send me an email or, or Facebook uh, email at theimposterpodcast at gmail.com and let me know what you think of it. If you like it, I'll keep doing it. It's a very spontaneous short thing. It's about two minutes long, so if you have the time, check it out. All right, I've rambled too much. Let's start the show. Ba-boom! We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of The Imposter Podcast. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Larry Leibovich, who is a professor of physics and psychology at Queens College of the City University of New York. Dr. Leibovich, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. Um, so before we start, I, I just have to say I've been so fascinated by all the vast and encompassing research topics you've worked on from the social psychology of, of conflict modeling to the modeling of different interactions of, I believe, pharmaceuticals uh, to reduce adverse effects, and even to the migration patterns of humans and the spatial distributions of their artifacts, which is actually what brought me to your work and what we're going to talk about kind of today. So I just have to say before we start, I'm, I'm really curious, how did you find yourself in this multidisciplinary field of both physics and psychology? My background is originally in physics and then in astronomy, where I did motions of stars and gas and galaxies, and that was very mathematical. So as I got involved in biological things at first, I was looking for ways in which we could apply the mathematics to help learn things about systems that maybe we wouldn't be able to do um, if we hadn't used the mathematics. And one thing led to another, and I got involved in more and more in different systems. And then after a while, people would come to me with problems. So I would wind up working on systems that I wasn't expecting to. So it's, it's, it's a very crooked line, but it's all a line from one place to another. Oh, well, you know, I find that with most academics, it kind of has that evolution where you kind of end up working on projects that you wouldn't necessarily thought you would be on when you started, but... Hey, collaboration is always good. It leads to great things. Uh, that's very interesting. Do you do any of the astronomy anymore? No, but 
I wind up every once in a while using some some of the mathematics of the astronomy. I haven't done much. I've been teaching astronomy a little bit, <laughs> at least in astronomy uh, labs and developing some, I thought, more exercises where students went out and looked to see where the moon was uh, and did things that were more uh, out of the classroom to tie what they were doing on the pieces of paper into what they could see in the real world. Actually, that that's something that I wasn't going to bring up, but I'll quickly ask. Uh, ha- have you found that it's hard to engage um, new students or, I guess, undergraduates specifically that are coming into this a bit, you know, higher education uh, into finding mathematics or the, the harder sciences a bit more interesting? No, I think it's a question of engaging people in a way that they see the relevance of it or they see how it's connected to something in their life and then trying to explain it at a level that they can understand. Not that you ever heard about this, but it is possible sometimes that college professors explain things at levels students don't understand. <laughs> what? And then they, get a little, then they get a little angry at the students. So um, I've had pretty good responses in trying to reach students. And it's a process. You have to learn as a teacher how to present things. And if something doesn't work, you try it in a different way. So it presents its own challenges, but I found that students are receptive if they can, if you can try and make it relevant to them. I've had a lot of really good professors, but I've also had some um, some bad experiences, and I wish that they had had that mentality of if it doesn't work one way, maybe try a different approach, because that you know I that, I think that's so important. So you have very lucky students. All right, so. Let's get down and dirty and, and, and start talking about the 2010 paper you co-authored, Correlated Walks Down the Babylonian Markets, which was pretty cool. Uh, it, for those folks at home that are not familiar, uh, the paper was looking at the change in market dynamics over time, and they were looking at the markets of ancient Babylon and medieval and early modern England, finding similarities between the dif- these different markets regardless of the different historical and economic context, which is fascinating. So I was wondering if you can walk us through this paper a bit and tell us about the, the actual research. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So let me start off by saying that the authors on this paper were Natalie Romero, Ma, myself, Clifford Brown, and uh, Plamen Ivanov. Uh, so there are a number of different people who've been involved in this. Basically, a relatively short time ago, maybe 20 or uh, 30 years ago, uh, a whole series of cuneiform tablets uh, were first translated and published. All right, so real quick. Cuneiform is a type of writing that was invented by the Sumerians of Mesopotamia around 3000 to 3500 BCE. And cuneiform, the actual word, comes from the Latin word cuneus, which means wedge. And that is because the writing style that cuneiform is, is very wedge-shaped. And these tablets date from about 463 BCE to about 72 uh, BCE. And um, the tablets really weren't made widely available before that. And what the tablets were was once a month, uh, they said the really important things like what the, ki- what the king had done or where Venus was in the sky. Oh, wow. Um, 
And so these are recorded once a month. And if there was extra room uh, at the bottom, they recorded uh, in silver shekels commodity prices of wool and spices. Spices were very important, both to preserve food and maybe mask it if it wasn't so well preserved. And so there were a series of these tablets that had the prices for each month. But uh, not all the tablets were found. And so some of the months, the data is missing on these prices of the commodities. And these tablets were stored vertically in their clay. And so they tended to be more broken at the bottom. And so a lot of the data from the prices is also missing. Hmm. So what's really, really intriguing about this is we have these fluctuations in prices over a very long time scale, 450 years approximately, mm-hmm. and um, uh, but a lot of the data is missing. So it would be really interesting to see if the changes in prices and the fluctuation in prices then, a very long time ago, really are similar to modern economies. But we had to analyze the data in a special way because there were a lot of pieces missing. What other people have tried to do is to fill in the missing gaps and then analyze the data. Uh, But we didn't try to do that. We found three different ways of analyzing the data, which we thought would not be subject to the problems if the data was missing. And the bottom line of all this is that the fluctuations in these prices have the characteristic as if this was a to-date market economy uh, the way we have today. Some of the correlations are quantitatively a little bit different, but the characteristics of these prices look very modern compared to the way economies function today. That is fascinating. And you you mentioned that you, you had three different approaches to your methodology. And I have to say, you had some really nice, colorful analyses in the paper. Can you expand a little bit about the actual uh, methods that you used? Yeah, so what, what, one of them, which is sort of an interesting thing. So let me ask you, you're, <laughs> you're a good scientist. Uh, yeah. You're going to know the answer to this. Not all scientists know the answer to this. If you ask most scientists, if you had a series of data where the data spans several orders of magnitude, so there were numbers like two in it and numbers like 3,000. And you asked how often the first digit, one through nine, appears in that data. So you look at all the data, which could be like populations of the 100 biggest cities in the world or something. Mm-hmm. And you ask how often those numbers start with a two or a four or an eight. Most scientists would kind of think for a moment and say, well, it should be uniform, that there should be an equal probability of getting a 9 or a 1 in the data. Right. Uh, And in fact, uh, that's not the case at all. Data data that starts with 1 appears, I think it's almost 9 times as often as data that starts with 9. Oh, wow. that appear are first 1 and then 2 and then 3 and then 4. And this was discovered a little over 100 years ago, actually by an astronomer named Simon Newcomb. Because in the old days, people had books of tables of logarithms to help them do division. And he realized if you look at the edge of the book, they were dirtier at the beginning where there were more ones. People were looking up more data that started with ones. In the 1930s, a chemist named Benford 
looked at tens of thousands of numbers in the Handbook of Chemistry and Physics and found the same peculiar distribution of first digits, that there are many more ones than twos and more twos than, uh, than threes. In fact, this is so robust that when people just make up numbers, uh, they don't do this. And in fact, this has been one of the ways that people have detected frauds huh. uh, of people making up numbers in for financial reasons. So one of the things wow. that we could do for the data from these Babylonian markets uh, was to see, does the data have this first digit distribution? And in fact, when we did that for the data, it did. And we could also show that that's not sensitive to missing data, because if the data was missing at random, it wouldn't affect this distribution. Right. And one of the peculiar things about this distribution as well is that it's invariant under a transformation to a different scale. So if you did all the measurements in centimeters and then converted it to miles, you would still see the same distribution of first digits. Hmm. So this was one of the qualities we looked in the data. If this is both real data and it represents the way numbers appear in financial markets, then it should have this distribution of first digits. And that was one of the things we found. So that's one of the steps of uh, seeing what it is. A second method was how often we have numbers of different size in the data. And the data had a distribution like that, which is technically called a stretch exponential distribution, which means that there are a lot more smaller numbers and less frequently there are larger numbers and very rarely there's a very large number but they have a certain relationship to each other. The third method involves looking at correlations in the data. If the prices increased at one time, are they more or less likely to have increased at another point in time? And in fact, we could measure those correlations. And those correlations also had uh, characteristics that are similar of data from medieval England and actually modern financial data. Really? We could test each of these methods, as I say, by doing computer simulations and taking away data to make sure that the missing data wouldn't give us a false result in the analysis. And all three of these methods showed that this data looked very real and it looked like modern and medieval financial data. Temin at MIT had looked at this data Previously, he was one of the people or the person who tried to fill in the gaps in the data. And he also concluded, as, as we did using different analysis, that this was real economic data. There had been some discussion earlier as to maybe it wasn't economic prices, but maybe it was taxes, maybe it was prices put down by the king or something like that. So what, what Temin showed and what we showed also with different analysis is this look like real economic data in an economy that functioned not so differently than our economy 2,500 years later? Hmm. That is fascinating. You mentioned uh, correlations between one bump here and another one there. If you were going to give an example of that, would that say, let's say a conflict, you know, a war breaks out and prices spike. Is that something that you would see kind of consistently throughout all the times? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't repeat in a cycle, but it repeats in the following way. So the jargon way to describe this would be to call this a fractal. 
right. which means if prices increase now, then they're more likely to increase a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now, a century Continuously, from now. as a fractal does. Right, right. So it's like looking at a mountain range. You know, you see little peaks and bigger peaks and a lot of valleys and false valleys. Right. And that's very much the quality that modern economic data has. And we found okay. that modern economic data was very similar to the data from medieval England in terms of the degree of correlation, but that was a little bit different mm -hmm. in terms of roughness than what we saw in the Babylonian data. Now, I find it fascinating um, for a couple reasons. One is, I don't know what it's like for physics and psychology, but at least in marine biology, you, you really have to struggle to prove why your research is relevant to get the funding. Now, this kind of, in and of itself, shows why it's relevant, because you can compare it to modern markets. But I find it interesting, you know, there are so many more complicated aspects to the way business is done today, it seems. You know, you have the online market. There's lots of different ways that it manifests itself. So what is the extent to which we can apply it to modern day? I mean... Right. No, I think that's a good question. I think you could use some of these analysis to see whether the online behavior is different or the same as computerized markets or whether the trading... A lot of the trading on markets now is done by algorithms, and right, uh, right. you know, you you could analyze each of those data streams separately and see whether they have the same or different characteristics. We haven't done that, so I'm sort of reluctant to say whether those would be the same or <laughs> or, or or different. Fair enough. Okay, well, that that is uh, that's very interesting. All right, so so the other paper I'd like to hear a bit more about is is shifting topics. Your more recent paper, the 2015 one that, uh, again, was co-authored, uh, The Dynamic Consequences of Cooperation and Competition in Small World Networks, which, again, was just so fascinating because, well, I find anything with social dynamics very, very, both incredibly difficult and strangely intuitive. Uh, but this, this paper focused on the roles and also the boundaries that are carved out from both cooperation and competition, which... Again, as someone that's dabbled with biology, is an integral aspect of most successful species on this fine planet that we occupy. And so, I guess, can you again give us a brief rundown of, of this paper? Sure. Well, 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 I've been doing with a number of collaborators, we've been doing models, first of all, of the dynamics that is, the interactions in time of how two people interact with each other. And those two people can be in a conflict. So what we did in this paper is extend some of those ideas uh, to what would happen with a whole collection of people. And this was done with Lev Guzman Vargas and uh, Fernandez Rosales, uh, who are in Mexico City. Okay, cool. And what, what we've been looking at in this paper are the difference between cooperation and competition and how people behave. And this sort of is an outgrowth of a number of people who've worked on conflict resolution, like uh, Morton Deutsch, who is and was at Columbia University, mm -hmm. and others as well. And so one of the ways to think about cooperation is that, you know, if a bunch of other people are doing something, you want to do the same thing as them. And one way to look at competition 
is if a bunch of people are doing the same thing, you want to do the opposite of them because you want to do something different. Mm -hmm. So what we did, what we did in this paper, we looked at different numbers of people up to about 2000 people. And each person is getting input from some of the other people. And each person is either trying to cooperate or is trying to compete with the other people. And you have to figure out which people are influencing which other people. So the way we set that up is on what's called a small world network. And what that means is that uh, people are connected to a few people nearby, but there's a certain probability that they're connected to someone much further away, either in another city or in another different um, social network or in a different religion or something like that. Right. So people have both local connections in very distant locations. So that's the network of how we connected the people. And in the whole network, we can make almost everybody be cooperative, trying to do the same as all the other people they interact with, or we can make everybody uh, uh, competitive, trying to do the opposite of each other, or we can have a mixture, you know, 50-50 or 70-30 right, of how right. people are behaving. And what we looked at is dynamics, that is, how people's values evolve over time. What we found is that if everybody is cooperating with each other, then the values they have build on each other because everyone sort of sees what everyone else is doing. And so their values uh, keep getting higher and higher. So there's, a, there's a widespread of values of everyone in the network. And also, hmm. the network rather soon, from initial starting conditions, from kind of a random start, winds up frozen because there are groups of people who are all doing the same. Maybe they started from one initial value, and maybe there's a group next to them that started at a different initial value, so they're doing something different. But, but each group is doing all the same, and they wind up being frozen. The surprising thing was that if people do the opposite of each other, something very similar happens. Again, as the system evolves in time, in a relatively short time, uh, again, people fall into a single way of acting a single value. If they're competing with each other, it's much smaller groups of people because if five people here are doing something, the five people next to them want to do the opposite. So they're much smaller groups. What we found, which was surprising and quite interesting, if there was roughly an equal mix of people trying to do the same or the opposite of each other, the whole network of people seemed to behave in a much more interesting and we think better way, mm. in two ways. First of all, the, all the values in the network are closer together. And we think we understand why that happens from some of the earlier work we did on two people interacting. But all the values in the network are closer together. And moreover, the network doesn't freeze. The values that people have keep changing a little bit, but not too much. Right. So it's, it's bad to be too locked into something, and it's bad to be too random. And so being in the middle of that, which is sometimes called the edge of chaos, is usually a better place for a system to be, because it means the system has a little bit of give in it, and if the environment changes, it can respond to things a little bit better.
So the overall summary of what we found is that a mixture of different behaviors, some people doing the same and some people doing the opposite of each other, was actually better for the functioning of the whole system, both in keeping the system a little bit flexible and keeping the values of everyone in the system a little closer together. So this was an unexpected but surprising and pleasant uh, argument for diversity. Then having diversity in the network made the whole network function better. Hmm. Uh, and again, both of these behaviors are a very limited way of thinking of what diversity would be. But it's still interesting that when we had multiple types of behaviors, it was better for everyone. It is interesting. It's, it's interesting, actually, uh, on, a, on a current events type of platform when you have uh, a few of these Western civilizations currently... I won't name names, but yes, I will actually. The USA and England both have conservative parties that you know are are sort of it seems against diversity. I'm not chasing, taking sides, but it's interesting to see the drivers behind that. Um, aside from scapegoating and you know distractions, but there is it seems an inherent reaction to diverge from diversity, where people don't like including someone new in, and it and it's interesting to know what the drivers behind that is, and indeed that from your research that moderation is having a combination of the two, like you said, is, is the key or, or what this piece of research is. I, I would be interested to see if that is applicable to current events. Right. Well, this goes back to something you said earlier, actually, which is, you know, uh, people are more complicated than just a simple model. And <laughs> yes. there can be lots of, lots of other things going on and how, and how people interact. What we found and what physicists have found in, in a lot of different circumstances is sometimes relatively simple systems can have relatively surprisingly complicated behavior. And Andre Novak has referred to this as dynamical minimalism. Hmm. And sometimes a very few set of rules lead to very complex behavior. So sometimes we think we can learn things from very simple models because they show one way, it may not be the exclusive way, that a single type of behavior can lead to something that looks uh, much more complicated. This also shows, I think, the value for doing real mathematics about on these systems, mm. because this is behavior we would not have expected, but once we encode what we think is happening into the equations, and then we can evolve the equations with the computer forward in time, then we could see behavior we would have not necessarily expected. Hmm. And the mathematics makes it easier to do this than if we try to think things through in words. So this is an advantage where the mathematics tells you something that you might not necessarily have expected. Right. Although, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I really, I'm definitely out of my, my field of uh, comfort. But, you know, there is only so much that we can actually gather from mathematical modeling because there is that aspect of randomness that humans have and and so i guess to to that respect will will we ever get there i mean will we be able to accurately predict i mean you know they're they're talking about creating models now to predict crimes like i don't know if you saw the film minority report but you know similar to that and and it it's a bit scary because how can you actually accurately you know for 100% predict what someone's behavior is going to be well, well i think that's hard I think we don't know how 
what the quality of these predictions are going to be. But we're, we're now in a situation with, uh, to use all the jargon phrases, big data and artificial intelligence, where we have a lot more data to see things. And right. that may be able to create predictions. And how often those predictions are accurate, I think, is, is something that we'll see. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. And actually, uh, one more thing that you said uh, just previously that I thought was interesting that I hadn't really thought about. But, you know, there are a lot of laws on the books that are explicitly left vague so that you can interpret to your own demise or, or I guess, benefit, depending on what it is. But is that what you were, you were referring to, where, you know, you have the ability to have something very simple interpreted in many complex different ways? Not, not exactly. I mean, I think that vagueness opens up a lot of different possibilities, <laughs> right. which is what you're saying. And I think yeah, yeah, that's it is. true also. I think even very simple things that we think we know, and this goes to systems in mathematics that are called chaos. Where is this chaos theory? Have, yeah, 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 chaos theory. So what, what that, the chaos here is an unfortunate word because it means just the opposite of what it normally <laughs> means. So, so, so chaos in a mathematical sense means a system where we know completely the wheels and the gears. We know the equations, wow. and yet the system can produce an output that is so complicated that it looks as if it's random. And yet there are ways of analyzing to tell that it's not random, and yet you can uh, see what the equations underlying it are. Hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think even relatively simple assumptions that we make about things, even when there's no ambiguity, can sometimes lead to surprisingly complicated Outcome. So both ambiguity and lack of ambiguity <laughs> uh, can produce things that we're not expecting sometimes. Oh, fascinating. Uh, all right. Well, b before we wrap this up, I, I have two, two more questions. One is having to do with kind of an overarching theme that can be possibly applied to your research, which is it seems that you know, the more we we learn about humans, we discover that we're good at patterns. We, we're good at pattern recognition. Has that played a factor into, you think, why, for example, in, in the first paper we talked about that there could be similarities in the markets as well, and in this, in, in the second paper, why there might be this give and take, I should say, are these patterns that are emerging because humans themselves display patterns in their behavior, or... Uh, are we just good at picking up on them? I think I think that's an interesting question. It's a good question. I don't I don't really know the answer to that. <laughs> Fair um, enough. I think we're influenced in some ways by the environment. To get back to fractals, people find environments that have certain fractal dimensions, which is a way of characterizing how rugged a fractal is. People seem happier when they're surrounded by pictures with those dimensions and those dimensions actually uh, are very close to what you see in nature hmm. so in some ways we're part of the world around us and we resonate with some of the patterns around us and i don't know maybe that which is what you're suggesting does play an influence in how we do financial things or how we respond to numbers right yeah it, it, yeah it's all right. Well, very interesting. So I, I like to ask my guests, you have a platform being on, on a podcast. 
And as this is uh, the opportunity, this is not obviously mandatory by any means, uh, but if there's anything you'd like to say, any message or overarching theme or shout out to your students or anything of that sort, you know, you, you have you have a time here to say it. So uh, if there's anything that comes to mind. Say one of my probably two favorite quotations, which is really sort of a faux quotation, but is sometimes attributed to the social psychologist Abraham Maslow, is if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to treat everything as if it were a nail. And mm-hmm. I think when we look at things from different perspectives, um, we can see different things sometimes. And for me, it's been very fun to study different systems and interact with a wide range of other scientists because uh, every time I do that, uh, I get to use screwdrivers and pliers and other <laughs> things, and that, that makes things uh, more interesting and I think more useful. I love that. I really, I, I firmly and wholeheartedly believe in that quote as well. I really like that. All right. Well, Dr. Leibovich, thanks again for coming on. Dr. Leibovich is a professor of physics and psychology at Queens College of the City University of New York. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's the show for today. Don't forget to like and share The Imposter on Facebook, SoundCloud. You can follow me on Twitter at Another Fogel. And as always, Share the imposter love. If you have friends or family that you know might enjoy the imposter podcast, send them the link, you know? Send them send them the Facebook page. It's not a big deal. Last but not least, you can always find us on the iTunes Music Store, keyword the imposter podcast. Alright everyone, thanks for tuning in today. Have a wonderful weekend and we will see you.